This is ASHA Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. You may know that a blow to the head can land you in front of an audiologist or a speech-language pathologist. Following a mild traumatic brain injury or mild TBI, you may discover a host of unwelcome results from effects on the vestibular system to executive function to cognitive capacity and more. Today on the podcast, you'll hear an audiologist and SLP discuss working together to assist patients with mild TBI. In recognition of Tinnitus Awareness Week, today's conversation will place a special focus on cognitive capacity capacity and tinnitus. Guests share the opportunities they found in collaboration and the way it changes the questions they ask new patients. Now to introduce the guests. Joining me are two faculty members from the College of Allied Health at the University of Oklahoma. Suzanne Kimball is an audiologist, a professor, and the undergraduate program director in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders. She's the coordinator of the Tinnitus and Sound Sensitivity Lab at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. Jennifer Tetnowski is an assistant professor and the Speech Language Pathology Program Coordinator in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders. Both guests join us from the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center in Oklahoma City. I welcome them to the show when I spoke with them in January. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. We're going to be talking about brain injuries today, brain injuries and tinnitus, and what it might look like to address these subjects with an interprofessional lens. I know this is something you've been collaborating on. I understand you recently presented on the topic at the 2023 ASHA convention. Take me to the beginning of your story. Is there a patient story at the heart of your collaboration? This is Jennifer Tetnowski talking. Why, yes, there is. Um, It all started with Tommy, of course, not his real name. Tommy had sustained a brain injury probably about six months prior to coming to our clinic. And when he uh, came to see us, he was continuing to experience hearing issues. He reported tinnitus, some dizziness. He was having some vision problems and word finding issues. And additional post-concussive symptoms he had were like irritability and intolerance for noises in loud environments. So he was still quite symptomatic and it was really impacting his ability at work. He had returned to work and he was really struggling with managing the work demands and the cognitive demands at work. When he walked through the doors, tell me about what happened next. Well, the first thing we always do is is sit down and have a very nice conversation about how their symptoms are impacting their day-to-day life. So just had a person-centered interview that then prompted some cognitive and language testing to see where we could best help him. And we actually started the treatment plan before I then reached out to my friend, Dr. Kimball, and said, hey, Dr. Kimball, he's reporting some tinnitus. And so, you know, I'd I'd like for you to consult on the case. Tell me uh, what happened then. One of the things we know is that after mild TBI, uh, tinnitus is a symptom in many people. And so based on the fact that it's not necessarily uncommon for that to be the case, not surprisingly, Dr. Tetnowski referred him to my clinic here at the university. 
when we saw this gentleman, we just did the tinnitus evaluation like we would do with any patient that reports the symptoms. We had a full tinnitus evaluation. He did report some hearing loss initially in Jennifer's clinic. And so not surprisingly, we found some hearing loss in him, which could very likely be contributing to the tinnitus complaint as well. So we recommended, we had some recommendations for him for hearing aids and sound therapy and and such. And we did, by the way, test him in noise and those types of things to kind of see what type of impact the hearing loss was having on his ability to to function. We made some recommendations for bilateral amplification as well as sound-enriched environments and sound therapy as well. You mentioned it's not unusual for tinnitus to show up after a brain injury. Is this coordination between the two of you, was that unusual? Is there something, how often do you collaborate? Well, interestingly enough, Tommy was our first time we had ever formally done that. Since then, we've had several other patients come through the clinic with similar sort of situations, and we have made that part of our protocol together to make sure that those assessments happen. And I actually would recommend that for all of our colleagues that are in speech language pathology and audiology together when you see a patient with these mild TBI symptoms and tinnitus as well, that both disciplines be consulted for these patients. Since this is an interprofessional conversation, I think we should talk just briefly about kind of the respective expertise. Jennifer, if you don't mind, just very briefly from the SLP standpoint, there's a traumatic brain injury. What are the first things that you're thinking about? The first things that we're thinking about are how that brain injury has impacted their memory, their problem-solving ability, their motivation for change. And so we typically do tend to go into just kind of assessment mode. And so our, I guess our first concerns are kind of figuring out where their levels are and how we can best put in some external compensations for that. And so it, it's, a, it's a logical extension when a client tells you that, by the way, I'm experiencing this ringing in my ears. By the way, I no longer go out to dinner with my family because I can't stand all the noise in the background. Or I'm frequently, you know, excusing myself from the room because I just can't handle all the noise in the room. It kind of comes out from that initial interview with the client that the extension is, okay, this is a problem that I cannot solve alone as a speech language pathologist. And so let me bring in a team member that can help target this. And Suzanne, similarly, there's a head injury. You mentioned checking for tinnitus, but also hearing loss. Talk to us a little bit about that relationship between tinnitus and a head injury or brain injury of any kind. Sure, absolutely. So one of the things we know about tinnitus is that it takes up some cognitive space when someone has not experienced a traumatic brain injury. We know that it affects things like executive functioning and processing speed and short-term memory and those types of things. Anyone who works with a tinnitus patient understands that for many patients, that tinnitus can be disruptive in their thought process. Patients come in to see me all the time and say, I can't 
can't concentrate. I can't read like I used to. I can't go to sleep. So imagine combining that with someone who has had this accident. Imagine the patient who is dealing with cognitive load issues from their traumatic brain injury combined with that tinnitus disruption as well. And so I think as clinicians, we have to be really cognizant of this isn't just my patient and my patient's tinnitus issues. I really need to work with my colleagues of giving this gentleman or any of the patients we work with some management skills to deal with both the tinnitus cognitive load and his traumatic brain injury issues at the same time. We have an audiologist and SLP, the two of you working together. Where do you see your work overlap and what opportunities do you feel that presents? One of the things that we chose to do collaboratively was make some of this particular patient that we've been discussing, Tommy, make some of his goals both about his tinnitus treatment and his management techniques for his mild TBI. For example, this gentleman did not choose to get his hearing aids, but if hearing aids had been part of that, we would have made the care and maintenance of the hearing aids as well as any of the tinnitus sound therapy programs or using those programs part of some of the management techniques that Jennifer would have worked with him about. We kind of kept a list of things where he sort of kept uh, in the back of his mind, you know, what his tinnitus symptoms were over the course of the past week or two so that he could come back and report those things while he was in therapy with Jennifer as well. I would also say in other patients, clinicians might consider the use of occupational therapists or mental health specialists or ENTs or other physicians to be part of that. And whether the speech language pathologist chooses to have that be part of their management strategies and keeping that data collection as part of that, I think that's an amazing way to handle that. Yeah, I would agree. And I would say that I, I think a barrier to ideal treatment is that that interprofessional collaboration, it, it still is relatively in its infancy. And so I think it's really important that as we're training the new workforce and we're developing persons for interprofessional collaborative practice, that they know what the other disciplines can do. If I didn't work in a university setting, I might not have known that, yes, you can manage tinnitus. It's not a foregone conclusion that they're going to suffer all their lives, but that with this first client, I learned more about what an audiologist can do to support someone with tinnitus and how the audiologist recommendations and the speech pathologist recommendations can align and overlap, such as, you know, changing up his environment to reduce the background noise. And I think, Suzanne, you worked with him on some things he could do at home sound therapy-wise to help him sleep at night, too. That's correct. That's correct. This is maybe white noise or something like that? Yes. Yeah. Just just using some sound therapy and some sound-enriched environments so that he wouldn't go to sleep at night in a perfectly quiet room where that was what was causing him distress at the time that maybe yeah, exactly the use of white noise or those types of things to get him to be able to have that enriched environment, which would allow him the ability to relax and go to sleep at night. What else did you learn from each other? Was there anything that surprised you about the other's work? 
I don't I don't know necessarily about that. I know one of the things that came from our presentation at the ASHA convention in 23 was that we had colleagues comment to us from the audience that perhaps were like in private practice and things like that, that they didn't feel like they knew what their local resources were. They're a private practice audiologist, for example. They said, you know, where do you suggest we reach out to find someone in the speech pathology community that I could partner with on seeing these patients? I think it was a fairly common thing that they had seen patients who they believed had mild TBI and certainly had tinnitus, but they had never really thought about the fact that, hey, this might be something I could reach out to a colleague. So they were asking us suggestions about how to reach out to people in their community to look for that. So one of the things we we found very positive about that was the opportunity to say, check with your local university, check with the hospitals, check with those types of things to see if you could partner with someone Mm -hmm. in your area to work with these patients. I think a resource that people often overlook is, is ASHA's website in itself, a find a provider website. What other challenges do you think people see when it comes to collaborating interprofessionally? This is Suzanne. I think one of the things, and we've heard this, you know, for many years, it's sort of a catchphrase is that we sort of work in our own silos. So, for example, if I see a tinnitus patient, or if a physician sees a patient, or if a a social worker sees a patient or whatever that has these complaints, sometimes we always don't make the connections. We always don't link together, perhaps, in what we're talking about today, someone who's had a mild TBI and has tinnitus symptoms or has a complaint of hearing loss, that maybe there is a connection there. Because I think sometimes, myself included, I'm not pointing the finger at everyone else, we get so involved in our own silos. I've been treating tinnitus patients for decades now. And so I absolutely go into my tinnitus mode and sort of forget sometimes that there's this world out there that I could be accessing for this patient who's had other things. And at a minimum, asking the patient if they've had any type of accident or anything like that to try to see if there's something other than just hearing loss or whatever that might be contributing to that tinnitus complaint. I'm really glad that our collaboration happened because it's made me much more conscientious about how I treat my own patients now. I think just by asking a person with tinnitus, whether you do or don't know if they have a history of brain injury, if you're asking them, is your tinnitus impacting how productive you are at work or how, you know, how well you are able to engage at home? That even can open the door right there, depending on the severity of their tinnitus. And and every individual is unique. For some people, that tinnitus is going to be so debilitating, taking up that cognitive space that they could benefit from some cognitive management strategies. Yeah, this is Suzanne again. I really feel like we've probably had these patients all along, and then all of a sudden this collaboration happened with this particular patient. And now I think we look at our our patients in a whole different way now and say, do I need to collaborate on this? Is this not? But I feel like we probably missed folks along the way because it just hadn't dropped in our lap. And once this dropped in our lap, we've both stopped and said, hey, let's do something different. Let's create this protocol, if you will, of questions we're going to ask patients now to make sure that we're serving them in the best patient-centered way that we can. 
ASHA Healthcare Company, Abbott, and the Brain Injury Association of America, they're all part of a coalition bringing attention to head injuries. It's called the Concussion Awareness Now campaign, and you'll notice the intentional use of the word concussion. A part of the campaign includes raising awareness of symptoms, and I think that the word concussion is maybe more familiar for some people in the public. With this in mind, I asked our guest if they thought the public was aware of what can happen after a brain injury. I don't think uh, awareness is where it needs to be. And I think that the public makes an erroneous assumption that if it's concussion, that it's going to go away. And those symptoms, they don't always disappear. And if you've had more than one concussion, it is more likely that those symptoms will not disappear. I've worked with multiple people that are post-concussion um, that are told that, oh yeah, it's all, it's, it's going to go away. And, and it's, it's not, and they are, they continually manage their symptoms through their diet, through getting enough sleep, through again, controlling their environment. So there's not too much going on. I want to dive more into what we're talking about with cognitive load, cognitive space. Take me a little bit through the patient experience. Yeah, Sure. We can, you know, let's talk more about Tommy because Tommy, a bright gentleman, he managed multiple people in his job. He could remember everything someone told him. So, you know, he could have a, a list of 20 things that someone told him to do and he could remember that before his head injury. As a result of his and he was told this was a concussion. It may have been a concussion. It may have been technically mild TBI because no one is exactly sure how long he was unconscious. But after this sustained head injury, his cognitive capacity, his cognitive capabilities, they were now diminished. I'm differentiating his cognitive capacity for like what he can handle versus cognitive load, and that's the task demands that have been placed on him. Tinnitus was taking up some of that cognitive space. So tinnitus formed a huge cognitive load that was further depleting an already depleted cognitive capacity because of the brain injury. So we set up these external plans and behaviors that would then free up as much cognitive space as possible. And where the audiologist comes in is by training the client to help manage the tinnitus better. Now we're reducing the amount of cognitive load and the cognitive demand that the tinnitus is taking on this diminished system. Mm -hmm. Navigating the healthcare system can already be overwhelming. I'm hearing you talk about you know, the cognitive load that's associated with MTBI and tinnitus, I assume that that can make some of this even more challenging. You're saying accessing healthcare. Yes, that is a challenge, which is why he didn't come to us until like six months after his head injury. He had actually not had speech therapy before because he was told his symptoms would go away. And it was only through a friend of a friend of a friend that he'd heard about our clinic. For him, accessing the care um, was a huge hurdle. And for many people, and we could start talking about social determinants of health and equity as far as access, but just increasing awareness 
of concussive symptoms and how to best manage them, that would go a huge distance towards people getting better access to healthcare. And this is Suzanne. I would also say with this particular gentleman, he actually did have a hearing test initially right after his or shortly after his injury because he complained of hearing loss and tinnitus. And I can't speak to that, that, you know, it was at at another facility, but nothing ever kind of came of that either, you know. So when Jennifer and I got together and we sort of reevaluated the whole situation, it was a situation where he had received care, but none of that was linked together for him and none of it was incorporated together for him to understand that, you know, that perhaps there was a there was a link there. Perhaps there was something that was causing both of them at the same time. For him, that was the issue. And so if we're talking about person-centered care, I don't think that you can have person-centered care without interprofessional collaboration. And so I would argue that he wasn't getting and person-centered care until he came to our clinic. Briefly, tell me a little bit about what the cognitive training might look like. It is often setting up uh, systems like we use something called goal management training a lot, and we identify, you know, just external devices that you can use. So in Tommy's case, it was forming as many routines as possible because when when some of his work actions become routines, then he, he doesn't need the same amount of cognitive resources to go through that routine. Um, Other things, like the most concrete thing was instead of him walking to his office and five people saying, oh, Tommy, can you do this? Tommy, um, you know, I need you to send me that report on blah, blah, blah. He talked with his team and they wrote everything on sticky notes. And so as he would walk by, they would hand him a sticky note. He would offload some of the internal memory demands by using external devices. So a lot of it's routines, using external memory aids and adjusting your environment. And this is Suzanne again, knowing what Jennifer was doing with him on those management skills gave me the opportunity, for example, in tinnitus management to do very similar things. I probably wouldn't do that with another patient, but in this particular case, giving him written instructions of using sound therapy and those types of things versus just sending him home after just me saying in the clinic, go home and play, you know, white noise or whatever. Um, Obviously, it's a little bit more involved than that, but I could give him some of those external supports to help him with that management as well. And considering that you were aware of what each other was doing, I would assume this presents an opportunity. Whenever you're evaluating whether or not treatment is effective, you can take in more factors than just what you're offering. Absolutely. Jennifer has a nickname for Suzanne. She calls her Dr. Tinnitus. Suzanne says tinnitus is her favorite subject. And since we're releasing this episode just before Tinnitus Awareness Week, I wanted to ask Suzanne a couple tinnitus questions. With thoughts of awareness, I asked her if there was anything she thought was overlooked about the tinnitus experience. Yes, I think 
mainly it's that, unfortunately, in the medical community, the misconception is still that there is, quote unquote, nothing that can be done for tinnitus management. And I cannot begin to tell you the number of patients that I've seen that reportedly, at least, have been told, I just have to learn to live with it. And I I have patients sit in the chair in tears, literally in tears, and say, I can't just live with this. You've got to do something to help me. And even some of the, the simplest strategies with using sound therapy and things like that can bring these patients tremendous relief. So if I could just stop getting people to say, from saying, you just have to learn to live with it, it would be the way I could probably be happy for the remainder of my professional career. (laughs) (laughs) What else do you want people to know about tinnitus? What I want them to know about tinnitus is that the products, the management skills, uh, et cetera, that, that are on the market today, there is a lot of things that exist out there that can bring true relief, maybe, you know, maybe even just improvement, um, but it can truly be used for the management of bothersome tinnitus complaints. I think a lot of people just say, oh, I don't know what to do or whatever, you know, using hearing aids alone or standalone sound therapy devices or those types of things can bring people tremendous relief if they're willing to go through with some of those options. Well, Suzanne, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. In our conversation, Suzanne mentioned the many places to learn about tinnitus online, and she encouraged referring patients to audiologists who do work with tinnitus if you feel uncomfortable working with the patient. We'll put a link to Asher resources on the blog post for this episode at on.asher.org slash podcast. This includes a recent Asher-produced online course for audiologists that focuses on traumatic brain injuries. And for SLPs, you'll find resources related to treating mild TBI more broadly as well. Look to the podcast archives for more on brain injuries and subscribe to the podcast to see new episodes as they arrive. Asher Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the Asher Leader magazine. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is Asha Voices.